Well, we're in the home stretch, folks. Chapter 28 of the story, only three more chapters after today. And chapter 28 is basically the first half of, uh, of the book of Acts. And what we have in Acts is Jesus building a team of believers, which we call the church. And during his ministry, Jesus said he would build his church, and Jesus has been building his team or his church for about 2,000 years. I've got some ringing up here. Uh, and as we've been going through the story, we've seen three movements of God's work in the world. First of all, he worked through a nation in the Old Testament. We saw uh, some ups and downs with them, of course, but God used Israel to bring about his purposes and bless the nations. Then the second main movement is Jesus, who came and died on the cross, and through him he breaks the power of sin and the barrier between us and God. And then the third movement is the church. And through his church, he brings the world back to him. Now, I've been in the church all my life. How many of you were raised in the church? Okay, a whole, whole bunch of you here. So. And I owe a lot of my faith and a lot of my spiritual and moral formation to the church. I was in Sunday school classes, and I sat through sermons, a vacation Bible school, went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, youth creeps, groups, groups, creeps. <laughs> and sometimes I felt they were creeps. Anyway, I, I didn't always appreciate it. I didn't always want to go, but today uh, I love the church, and I'm glad my parents made me go. It was a priority. Now, also, when we were a kid, there's a little finger saying that most of you probably have heard. Why don't you do it with me? Put your hands up and bring your fingers together and interlock them upside down, okay? And then uh, bring your hands down and then put your... Yeah, if you've got arthritis, this hurts. Uh, put these fingers up there, your index fingers, and then your thumbs like that, okay? Remember this? Okay, I want you to say it after me. Okay, let's go back like this. This is the church... This is the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. Oh, isn't that cute? Now, all the people when I was growing up was about that many, eight. I mean, they were small churches. Sometimes there's 10 or 15. And then after dad graduated and, and we went to another church, they had about 70 people. So they were not big churches and they certainly weren't perfect. But they formed me and formed our family and were a powerful influence. That's a cute, memorable saying. This is the church. This is the steeple. Open the door. See all the people. But it's wrong. It's terrible theology, actually. Church is not a steeple. It's not a building. The church is people. We know that. The building is just a building. So the church is you and me. So when someone says, I don't like the church, well, you don't like people, at least certain people. And when a Christian says, I don't like the church, you mean you don't like yourself. Because you are the church, and the church is not what we want it to be. It's, it's partly our problem. So this week and next, I'm going to compare the church to a baseball team, an all-star team, actually. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he was basically saying, I'm going to build a team. And he's doing just that, building a team of followers that will carry out his mission. And God's primary way of reaching the world and accomplishing his will today is through you and me, the church. Now, this church in Acts to me, is a dream team. I mean, they are an all-star church. They did have some problems to overcome, some obstacles both inside and outside the church. They had issues, but just an amazing team of believers. And this is what I'd like to see us strive for, what we see here in Acts. What's an all-star church look like? Acts 2, 42, page 392. They devoted themselves. There's the passion to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions and give, to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Wouldn't you like to be a part of a church like that? Devoted to teaching and fellowship, filled with awe, amazing things happening, miracles taking place. They were generous. They had enthusiasm. That's the kind of church I want to be part of. All in favor, say aye. All right. It also says they found favor with the people. In other words, they were attractive to the society and culture around them. They were growing. They had a strong missionary and evangelistic emphasis. It's just an exciting team. And so today, I want to look at this all-star church and ask, what is it about them that makes them so good, so powerful? See, in baseball, there's quality organizations. I hear that the St. Louis Cardinals is a quality organization. That's not prejudice. It's just pretty well agreed. I hear it all the time. It is one of the best, if not the best in all of sports. Well, what makes it, really? What makes it so good? <laughs> and some churches are healthier than others. Some are more effective. What's the difference? And I'm going to contend that the things that made the Jerusalem church an all-star church are the same things that still make for an all-star church today. And I see eight qualities in this chapter. I'm going to give you a thumbnail summary of these eight very quickly. And this summer, then, we're going to do an all-church evaluation, and we're going to bring in an outside tool to see some areas where we're strong and where we're weak and where we need to grow so we can become a better church, more of an all-star church. So what's an all-star church look like? Number one, all-star churches know God personally. Loser churches know about God, and they talk about God, they sing about God. They even study God. All-star churches know God. In a healthy marriage, the spouses know each other. They spend time with each other. They, they communicate. In healthy friendships, you don't just know facts about your friend. You know them, and you talk to them. And when you read Acts, this is maybe their greatest strength. They were filled with God, spirit-led, spirit-directed. Chapter 1, Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem without the spirit. You wait for that spirit to come on you. Don't try to do church on your own because you can't do it. Chapter 2, Peter says to the 3,000 that are baptized, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4, after they prayed, the place was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And throughout Acts, we see this church filled with God. Gamaliel said to the Jews uh, about these believers, said, if this church is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, no one will be able to stop these people. And that's it, folks. If our church is of human works and origin, we will fail. If it is of God, no one can stop it. Now, our text says they devoted themselves, first of all, to prayer. And then chapter 1, while waiting for the Holy Spirit, they joined together constantly in prayer. Chapter 3, they went to the temple at a time of prayer, so they had regular times for prayer. Uh, in 4, they raised their voices to prayer together, so there was corporate time of prayer. In chapter 6, the apostles said, we'll give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. So the leaders were devoted to prayer. So that's the second sign of an all-star church. They pray. All-star churches pray. They know God, and they go and talk to God. Stephen prayed in chapter 7, chapter 9, Peter prayed, chapter 10, Cornelius prayed. Can you imagine the Jerusalem church being filled with God and led by the Holy Spirit and experiencing these incredible events and amazing evangelism and miracles if they weren't praying? In chapter 1, they were praying, and then in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon them. I don't think that's accidental. I don't think the Holy Spirit would have come upon them if they were not praying. What if they were playing solitaire instead or playing cards? You know, in the upper room, hey, Peter, cut the deck and pass the coke. You think anything would have happened? 
Maybe we do not experience much of the Holy Spirit because we're playing cards, we're watching TV, we're going to games, going to meetings, reading romance novels, and then we wonder why we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Do we pray? I, I wonder what the apostles' board meetings were like. I've got a feeling they spent a lot of time on their knees, and that's a sign of an all-star church. Here's another thing. It says they met house to house on a daily basis. The main meeting place of the early church was in homes and really not buildings. Now, they met as a large group once in a while at the temple and meeting halls, but the core meeting time was these informal meeting settings in the home. So the third ingredient of an all-star church is the all-star churches have intimate fellowship. Now, in some ways, and I need to be careful here because some of you will take this wrong, the least important part of the life of the church is right now, what we're doing on Sunday morning. Now, it's important. But people can attend worship every Sunday and remain basically unchanged. You can sit in the church and not connect and not really get involved, not really you know, make any relationships. The real change and the real spiritual work usually happens in the group life of the church. I call it the substructure of the church when people are really involved. And if I could tap each member of the church on the shoulder and say one thing, I'd say you need to be in a healthy group. Now make sure it's healthy, of course. You need to be in an active ministry. You need to be rubbing shoulders with other believers and working side by side. You need some friends in the church. You need to connect with some other believers. I read a little item in a book uh, a few years ago called The Importance of That Third Place. It talks about the first place being your home. That's your priority. Your second place being work, your jobs. And then the third place is a gathering spot where you can meet people who are not part of your family, who are not part of your work, and the third place can be any number of places. Uh, in the old days, it might be the general store. Teenagers back in the 50s would gather at the drive-in hamburger joint. For some women, it would be the missionary society or ladies' aid society. It might be a neighborhood bar. For some, it's a club or a civic organization. Here in Mount Pulaski, it might be Subway for the guys every afternoon. It might be the Legion. It might be the brickyard or the barn. And, and when a person has that third place, they found there's less chance of divorce, less pressure, less burnout. And in today's society, for many people, that third place does not exist. For many, television and computer or Facebook has become a vicarious third place for millions of people, and there's a rise in stress and burnout. People need a third place that's personal, not technical. And the church has a great opportunity if we have an open, caring fellowship to, to provide that third place. And, and that's what the church was for me when I was growing up, that third place. So we need all-star small groups. We need healthy Sunday school classes and ministry groups. And it's in the groups where I have seen lives change. I've seen agnostics come to faith because they got in a group. I've seen self-acknowledged pew sitters become vibrant and growing Christians because of the fellowships. Another thing, it says everyone. You notice the superlatives? Everyone was filled with awe. Everyone went about teaching. They all gave of themselves. Number four, all-star churches have everyone doing ministry. A church is at its best when people go from being spectators to being participants. The best churches get on the field and serve the Lord. They're not just watching. Now, sometimes Christianity is like sports in a negative way. You know, when you go to a ball game, 18 people are out there on the field playing the game and 40,000 people are watching. 1% is doing 99% of the work. And too often that happens in the church too. And that's how we don't want to be like a sports team. But along with this, too, besides having everyone involved, we need to have the right people doing the right things. The apostles said, we're not going to wait on tables in chapter 6. They said, our job is to preach and teach and pray. They knew what their gifts were and what they should do. 
and they had other people do the waiting on tables thing. Now, I want you to, we're going to show you this picture. You remember this event? I remember that one very well. Two years ago, Packers were playing the Seahawks, and uh, you see Green Bay was ahead. They should have won by that score. But uh, notice one ref is calling it a touchdown, and one's calling it a incomplete. And he, and he was right, by the way, uh, in my humble opinion. Do you remember why that happened? It, it was the most re- ridiculous event of that year in the NFL. It's because they had replacement refs, and they were horrible. In fact, after this game, no more replacement refs. For some reason, they could work out a deal with the real refs. These guys were just not qualified. And if you get the wrong people in the wrong role, you get in trouble. God has wired all of us in some way that we can contribute in some way you know, on a team. You'll have starting pitchers, relief pitchers, you'll have closers, infielders, catchers, you know, outfielders, the coaches and the manager. You need all of them fulfilling their role, and it's the same in the church. We need to help people find their gifts and find their role in the church, and so everyone is involved in some way. The fifth trait is Acts 2.45. says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And then Acts 4.32 says, No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. What would you call a group that sold all their possessions to give to the church or help people in the church? If I sold all my money or all my house and gave, all my house, gave my house and sold my house and gave it all to the church, you'd call it a cult. You know, cults do that. Too radical. Too, too much commitment. That's crazy. And there's two wrong approaches to this text when it comes to this. First of all, the wrong, first wrong approach is we can't do this. This was a foolish mistake by the Jerusalem Christians. Just dismiss it summarily. We can't do it. The other mistake is go away. The other extreme is say, we have to do this. Everybody has to sell everything and we have to live in communes. And neither approach is correct. Not all Christians in the first century sold everything, but neither can we ignore this. If cultic means radical faith and radical devotion and sacrifice, then I would suggest we need some cultic characteristics in our church. So the fifth characteristic, all-star churches sacrifice, and they live by faith. All-star churches aren't nearly as interested in being respectable as they are in being radical. Now, I've noticed a trend in my own life as I get older. Those of you who are older probably notice this too. I want to play it safe now. I have more of a protection mentality. When I was younger, a little more daring, risk more. And I've slowly over the years developed a protector mentality. You've got to protect myself and play it safe. And that makes it a lot more difficult to sacrifice and step out on faith. And when the church loses that, it's no longer healthy. Who are some of the protectors in the Bible? Think of those who played it safe. Lot chose the best land for himself to protect his assets, ended up destroying his family. He he lost everything. Solomon wanted to protect his kingdom by marrying foreign women and making alliances with them, ended up destroying, dividing the kingdom. King Saul tried to keep his kingdom away from David, wanted to protect it. They all tried to keep what they had. They were afraid of losing it. They all wanted to play it safe, and none of them were Bible heroes. They're all fools, actually. And what's really interesting, they all lost what they were trying to protect. Jesus said, if you're trying to save your life, you're going to lose it. It's when you lose it that you'll actually gain real life. So churches can be categories in one of two broad general ways. First of all, churches live by faith or they live by fear. 
Either they look ahead with confidence or they look back wanting to preserve and play it safe. The early church was willing to lose anything. And because of that, they had everything. All-star churches give up the protector mentality and take risks. They step out of faith and they sacrifice. Next one. Satan attacked this church on three fronts. Physical violence, persecution from Jewish and Roman authorities. The second was through moral corruption. Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit, lying about their giving. He tried to inject some uh, evil into the interior life. And then the third way was through distraction, to distract them from their main purpose. So number six, all-star churches have purpose. And they know what their priorities are, and they stick with them. In chapter 6, we have an example of the distraction. The church was going great guns, they're sacrificing, they're reaching out, but something started happening from within. There was some complaining. And I believe that in many churches, complainers are a huge distraction. Squeaky wheels get the attention. And the temptation is to put all our efforts into taking care of unsettledness within the ranks and get an inordinate amount of attention. And the primary work of the church is pushed aside because we've got to deal with these complaints. And complaining, by the way, has its place. Okay? Sometimes things need to be complained about. And the apostles don't ignore this complaint. It's a legitimate problem, but they're not going to let it become their number one concern. They said, we are not going to wait on tables. We're not going to get distracted. We're going to continue to preach and teach and pray because that's our primary purpose. Every so often, I think a church needs to stand back and ask, what are we doing? Why are we here? What's this all about? And how are we going to accomplish our purpose? It is so easy to lose why we exist. They went everywhere preaching. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. That was his mandate to them. In chapter 2, they speak in tongues of all nations, symbolic of the universal purpose of the church. And then in the next several chapters, it shows how they filled Jerusalem with the gospel, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then it spread throughout the whole world, just as Jesus had told them to. Acts 5.42 says they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus as the Christ. So one of the primary purposes, all-star churches have a passion for evangelism and mission. They want to take the word everywhere. I heard of a church that did everything wrong. I mean everything. Their worship was second rate. Their preaching was mediocre. They had poor facilities. They were poorly organized. Nothing was right, but they were still growing. And so some experts came in to study this church, this phenomenon, how they be so inept and still grow. And the conclusion was they just had this overwhelming passion for evangelism and love for the lost. And when we lose that passion and lose that purpose, we're no longer healthy. So we need to ask some serious questions like, do we care that people are lost? Do we? We have neighbors across the street that are lost. Do we care? We have neighbors across the ocean that are lost in Ethiopia, Japan, you know, all the nations. Do we care? There's children who are lost. Let's not get distracted in all these lesser things. We can't ignore these lesser things, but we have to stay on purpose. Now, evangelism and mission is more than just talk. It's another thing you see this. In fact, it's called the book of Acts. So do our acts make it so that our neighbor is drawn to us and drawn to what we believe? Do your acts show the compassion and love of Jesus? There's an old saying that says, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Christians need to talk less, act more. Every church talks about evangelism. Every church talks about reaching out in ministry. All-star churches do it. 
Now, Satan tries to hinder this church through persecution, you know, trying to destroy the inner life and trying to get them distracted. What did he try to hinder? Well, he didn't say, well, let's stop their emotion. They're too emotional. And that didn't worry him. Let's stop their worship services. That apparently didn't worry him too much. Let's stop their miracles and their tongue speaking. No. We got to stop their benevolent activity. No. We got to stop their fellowship. No. Here it is. Chapter 4, verse 2. They were greatly disturbed. The opposition was greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And then chapter 4, 18 says, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. In other words, we must stop them from spreading the word. Satan hates a church that teaches and evangelizes the word. And this is going to be number eight. All-star churches are centered in the word of truth. They spread the word and they make sure it's the true word. 20 25% of the book of Acts is actually actual preaching and teaching of this church. When Luke wants to indicate the success of the church, it says the word of the Lord grew and prevailed. So they were centered in truth. And too often, we think, well, if we just get all excited, we get all the programming going, you know, that's all we need. We just need to be filled with the Spirit. And too often, Spirit-filled becomes synonymous with empty brains. Spirit-filled believers do not disdain theology. They don't throw their minds out the window. And so often, we associate Spirit-filled with anti-intellectualism. You know, if you're intellectual, you're, oh, you're not really spiritual. And some of the worst approaches to the Bible and interpretations have been attributed to the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit told me this. No, he didn't. The Jerusalem church brilliantly brought together the spiritual, the emotional, the intellectual, and the practical. And they're an all-star church. But we have to have the word or we lose that foundation. Now, I know going through the story has been long. We started back in September, and it's been hard sometimes. But I've noticed that those that stick with it, I've seen some growth. And there's a little better grasp of the word. And we need an intelligent faith. Later this year, I'm planning on talking about this very issue. Why do we believe intellectually? What is the rational, logical rationale behind our faith? Can we defend it? Does it make sense? One of my heroes is uh, probably about 85 years old now. He's a preacher. His name's Ben Merrill. And he's led all-star churches all his life. And I remember... Several years ago, he came and did some preaching at our church, and at the end of the week, he said, Mark, you haven't asked me for any advice. Well, I was so intimidated by him, he was almost like a god to me. And so he offered some advice, and I remember one of the things he said. He said, there's all kinds of church growth books, all kinds of how-to books, all kinds of leadership books, but really, if the church does seven or eight things well, it'll be okay. I'm not sure what those seven or eight were. I'm not sure you even told me. But I believe the answer is right here in the book of Acts. We do these eight well, we'll be okay. And so this summer, we're going to do an evaluation of this church. And we're going to ask some of you to help out on this. We're going to look at eight categories. They won't be exactly these eight, but they'll be similar to these. We're going to see where we're strong, where we're weak, and then do some planning based on, based on that. Let me give you the bad news. Eventually, this church in Jerusalem, this all-star church, got sick and died. In fact, every church in the New Testament eventually died. Every church lost its vitality, lost their purpose, lost their direction. The apostles warned these churches about diseases that would come in. What were those diseases? Well, basically, you can take any one of these eight, and if one of them gets sick, the church will get sick. If we're not really knowing God, we're done. If prayer gets put on the back burner, 
it's over. If our fellowship gets infected by divisiveness, if people no longer serve, if we lose our purpose is why we're here, if we lose our passion for outreach, if we stray from the truth, any one of these, we lose one, we're done. They're all critical to good health. Now, I believe Mount Pulaski Christian Church has a solid foundation. We've got a rich history. We have some committed people. We have some things we can build on. I'm excited about the future, partly because we serve an amazing God, but partly because of the foundation that's here. And I'm just going to change this little finger play as we end here this morning. This is the building. This is the steeple. Open the doors. The church is the people. You and me. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful to be here at this church. I feel privileged to serve this congregation. And together, as a body, we ask for your leading, your spirit to fill us. We ask for your blessing to be upon us. We pray for your word to guide us. We want to be an all-star church. We want to be a church that finds favor with the people. The people in the community say, wow, what's going on there? You've already blessed us. You've blessed us with good leaders, good elders, good staff, and teachers and godly people and committed people, people of faith, people who are generous. And I would just say all of us would be in awe of who you are. And I pray, Lord, that we'll see miracles and that we'll see your power and your presence among us. We love you and we need you. We need you to abide in us as we abide in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.